think that might be your first ever Elvis song. Peter's not here anymore, so I was going to... Do you guys remember? Anyone who's been here since the beginning? I don't think we've done that Elvis before, have we? History. History in the making. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Mark mentioned, uh, today is a, uh, in a different way, kind of an historic day for us, at least in terms of the past couple of years, because we're starting a new sermon series, which we have not done in two years. Uh, some of you guys have not been a part of Hiawatha Church um, uh, before, since before our Matthew series, which goes back two years, and a lot of you actually probably can, can affirm that. And so uh, for you, this is our first like, sermon series shift that you've experienced. Uh, but we're going to do it, and we're going to spend uh, 15 weeks or so in the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon. And uh, with the sermon series at Hiawatha, like, um, like we're doing from Matthew to Songs, we like to make them vary on multiple levels sometimes from series to series to series if we can. So with Matthew, like our last series, it was a New Testament gospel. It was narrative, 28 chapters long. It was explicitly about Jesus, and it took us uh, two years to get through. This series in Song of Solomon is an Old Testament wisdom book. Uh, It is eight chapters long. It's poetic. It's implicitly about Jesus, and it will take us only 15 weeks to get through. So quite different on pretty much uh, every uh, angle or level imaginable, except that it's, you know, about Christ just beforehand which I'll talk more about in a second. But I love that about the Bible. And we've got to be careful with this statement because in one sense, all the Bible is for all of us all the time. So we can't just say, well, I, you know, poet, poetry doesn't really jive with me, so I'm just not going to read it or something. But at the same time, I think that with certain genres, God does a scratch where we itch a little bit more or there's just a certain sense to which, hey, it resonates. We've, we found that in our eight years preaching-wise here at the church that some people just say, hey, I I loved wisdom, I loved Ecclesiastes, or people will say, oh, Song of Songs, I can't wait. Others of you are like, oh no, I'll hold my breath for 15 weeks because I want narrative, I want something more explicit or accessible or something. So, but I love that the Bible is God speaks to us through all of it, it's all his word, but that it's not static. It's not a, it's not a one-trick pony. It is multi, it's multifaceted, there's different genres, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic literature, there's narrative, there's history, there's law, there's psalms. There's just Jesus and all of them, but from a variety of different angles. So uh, we'll see that throughout this series, that there's statements about God's love, and then there's demonstrations. Matthew is full of that as well, no doubt. So it's not like this is just unique to the Song of Solomon or something, or certain genres, but a lot of times God will say things, and he'll say, what I just told you, this is what this is like, and he'll do something. He'll live a certain way, or he'll demonstrate it. And sometimes, a lot of times anyway, and we saw this in Jesus' early ministry in Matthew, he'll do them uh, at the same time. So he'll teach with his words and say, this is true about me, this is true about God, this is true about what it means to be saved, and here's what this kind of looks like on an outward physical level. And so with poetry then, uh, it is, in a lot of ways, it seems like it's just not accessible, like it's enigmatic and it's hard to interpret, but um, it is still a demonstration of love, which again, we'll talk about here in just a second. But So you may or may not be aware that that is true about Song of Solomon. It is entirely poetic in genre and is notoriously difficult to understand. But we're diving in. We're just going to do it anyway. We, we love this kind, of, this kind of stuff. It's God's word, and it's just as much for us as the most explicitly uh, cross-centered chapters of uh, the gospel accounts in the New, in the New Testament. So, but uh, it is difficult to understand, sometimes even to know when one person stops speaking and the other person starts. And in your English translations, you have little headers uh, that say uh, he, she, or others, mostly he, she. Those are added by translators just to help us read and to know just grammatically, we're not, we're not reading the Hebrew here obviously, but we have our English translations that are a big help 
And those headings also help us to see breaks. But even those sometimes are interpretive, and so we've got to hold those a little bit loosely and uh, just know that they're not a part of the original uh, manuscripts, but they are, they are a help to us. But it's full of imagery that pertains to love, weddings, sex, relational tension and resolution, and beyond that, or maybe rather in all of that, salvation, uh, which I'll uh, come back to a little bit, little bit later. But um, overall, just the, the plot here, and I usually actually start sermon series like this by saying, I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking over issues surrounding authorship, original occasion or purpose, or date of the book, or how it became part of the Bible, or, or any of that, mostly just due to time, not because they're not interesting or in any way beneficial, but um, we just don't have time. And we, we'd rather make this about preaching rather than, hey, here's some facts about the book, which some of you are like, oh, I want that. I love that. And if you do, that's great. I've got a stack of books about as tall as I am that I can pass on to you. But, it, but more seriously, I'd love to talk to you about it. And so please just shoot me an email or, or email one of the overseers. Jesse Splann, actually, I forgot to mention this, uh, first service, one of our overseers is kind of a resident expert. He'll be preaching on uh, songs here in a couple of couple of weeks, and you'll hear from him a couple of times probably in the series. But if you know him, uh, shoot him an email. He'd love to talk. Spencer, myself, uh, another one of our uh, overseers. We'd love to share more just about the book in general, if you want, over coffee, or um, about those particular issues of authorship and how it came into being and original occasion. Who was Solomon? Though we'll talk about a little bit more of that today uh, here as well. So uh, let me know. But just in plot, though, just for just overall point here in the plot, just to get an idea of what it's about. In short, the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, those are both legitimate titles. They both come from the first verse, which I'll show you in a second, is a love story about a king in love with his fiance and eventual bride. It's a story of their engagement, their wedding, and their marriage in that order. Their engagement at the end of chapter 3 is the, is the actual wedding, and after that is their marriage, which consists, and the whole thing consists of a lot of dialogue. Uh, the, the husband talks to uh, the, the wife, the wife talks to the husband, and the, this other group called the Daughters of Jerusalem, uh, which have the main characters here, which I think are titled uh, Others, not to be confused with the lost characters, but is called the Others. Uh, the Daughters of Jerusalem are the ones that uh, speak into the relationship and are, are kind of friends of the bride, but who ask questions about the bride and the king and so forth. Uh, but um, you'll hear from them a couple of times too. But for the most part, it's the king, it's the he, the she, it's the king, the bride, uh, having experiences. Uh, sometimes the bride dreams about him. They have conflict. They resolve it. Uh, and, and the book ends with them living happily ever after. So a couple of bumps in the middle, but it's basically just a, a traditional, straight-up, awesome, faithful love story that just ends wonderfully. So, and we'll get there a few weeks from now. Uh, so, but anyway, have these, uh, and there are other characters too that are talked about in two events, things like that, but if you have those three categories in mind, you've got a, a good idea of who is talking throughout the book and basically the trajectory, which again is engagement to wedding to marriage. And it's a little easier to follow if you have that in mind when you uh, go about the book because there are points, many points, while you just start to pull out your hair in frustration with what in the world's going on. But, oh, it falls in the engagement section. Okay, understand that something's going on here with uh, that particular part of the relationship. It's, it's more helpful. King Solomon wrote the book, uh, who was the son of King David in the Old Testament. He lived about 960 B.C. Uh, as he did, uh, he wrote other parts of wisdom literature in the Old Testament too, like the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and parts of the Psalms. And now whether or not he's writing about his own experience or not is not quite as important. I think it is important, but not quite as important. Though I think that's the plainest reading of the book is to say that Solomon is writing about his own experience 
Uh, if you know something about Solomon too, he had a lot of wives later in his wife, which was sinful. Uh, he was not monogamous. And so it's likely that he wrote this towards the beginning of his life or possibly in reflection after he realizes that having a bunch of wives is not a good thing. Uh, my life's not good right now. And so I, I, I want, I, I mourn where I'm at and I, I want to go back to where I was with this, this first wife of mine or this monogamous relationship that I had with this one Shulamite woman. She's unnamed, uh, but this princess type individual that, uh, that I loved. And so now if you don't, by the way, if you know some things about the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, and, you know, enough to have a perspective on authorship and date and so forth that, that you're in a place, you don't think Solomon wrote it, you don't think it's his experience, that's okay. It's not really, it doesn't have to necessarily be a huge hill to die on. I don't die on that hill. I think Solomon did write it, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to come to different landing points on meaning. Uh, we probably won't, actually. Uh, it's just we'll get there in a little bit different routes. But we'll still talk about love. We'll still talk about God's grace. We'll still talk about redemptive history. We'll still talk about marital principles and things like that. Uh, so just, just to make sure that's clear, I wanted to say that, you know, I'm speaking for the overseers too. We're, we call in this song, King, song of Solomon because we think King Solomon wrote it, but if you don't uh, believe that, not necess- necessarily um, a, a big uh, contrasting issue. All right. The big thing that I want to do today, we'll spend most of our time here, and a little bit later we'll look at verse 1. I think I said that. But uh, talk about our interpretive approach here. Uh, if you've read the book before, I mentioned this, but it is uh, very difficult to understand. It's poetry. Poetry in general is difficult, but poetry in the Psalms is a lot more accessible and easy, and uh, grammatically it's just a little bit different, and it's a little more easy to access that and think, okay, this applies to me this way, or I can see Christ here and so forth. But songs is just a little bit, just a higher level of that, that uh, at least parts of it, not all of it on the same level, but at least parts of it are, are uh, tricky to wade through. So we have to ask this question, this bigger picture question, which we always start series this way. How do we interpret this book? What does it mean? How do we approach it? And this won't answer all of our questions immediately. We'll probably still 15 weeks from now, we'll end and say, I still don't know what that word means, or I still don't know what that concept means, or I still don't know what's going on here. But hopefully there's less of those than there were at the beginning, and we'll still have a big picture idea of what's going on uh, to the end that we'll get those bigger principles and learn a lot about Christ and principle and marriage uh, along, along the way. Uh, but historically, and I say this part for context and part to just acknowledge that maybe this is where some of you are and that's okay, but I'll address these. Historically, people have avoided and neglected this book uh, primarily for two reasons. There are probably others and it could be a mix of these for sure, but primarily one of two reasons. Uh, one, that it's too hedonistic. Or two, that it's too difficult to understand. And both of these perspectives or just thoughts on the, the matter or the book in general have problematic starting points uh, as we look at the rest of the scriptures. The, the, with the former issue, it's, it's too sexual, it's too hedonistic. We have to remember that God created sex and it's good. In the proper context, in the marriage context, uh, sex is a very God-designed, God-glorifying uh, in, a, in an earthly sense, a very satisfying thing, and that's good. So sex, and more broadly speaking, the flesh is not the problem. Uh, you always remember this. Sex is not the problem. Flesh is not the problem. Having passion for your spouse in a sexual manner is not the problem. Sin is the problem. So sin perverts things, and, and a lot of times it's not erase things, but twists things that were originally created good and makes them into divine things or God things or things that replace God or, or twists original design into things and fashions it into certain things that, that we should not do. So, although sin does do that, it, it, it wasn't 
meant to be that in the beginning. It can be very good as well. You should always remember that. So the fact that it's sexual and hedonistic, this is talking about a marriage. It's not, we shouldn't avoid it uh, for those reasons. As And this is not as big of an issue today, at least in a lot of our church circles, but it certainly is historically and maybe as a part of some of your past as well. In fact, actually, I forgot to mention this. One of the first things that happens in the Bible is that two people have sex. God creates the world. He, he makes Adam. He takes a rib out of Adam, has the first uh, kind of open chest surgery or whatever, and makes Eve out of the rib, and they have sex in a garden. And we're not even three chapters in, and this is already happening. So what does that tell you about the importance of sex, the importance of marriage? Adam calls Eve his wife. It's not just a man and a woman. It is a husband and a wife having sex in a garden, and then after that, all hell breaks loose, and sin comes into the world, and then Satan tempts them away to become their own gods and all of that. And God begins his redemptive plan through Christ to reverse all of that. But, but the fact that right at the beginning we have this happening tells us that it's good. It's pre-fall. It didn't, sex didn't come into the world after sin. It, it, was, it predated it. And that God, just because he's working that way in the beginning, has a particular plan. He's, he has something to say to us through it. We'll come to that a little bit later. With this latter issue, however, this is a little bit bigger issue, a more broad issue. It's just too hard to understand. I've tried. I got a chapter in. I have no idea what's going on. So I moved on to... Uh, the Gospel of Mark or something. It was just more accessible, uh, understandable. But with this latter issue, uh, Song of Solomon's always going to be hard to interpret, like I said before. But usually, when we're especially stuck by it, what we're doing is we're reading it in isolation. We're reading the Song of Solomon in isolation as though it's on an island of meaning, not informed by and helped by an interpretive level by the things around it, which is not the way the Bible reads itself. So I want to make sure that's clear. The Bible does not read itself and approach itself as though it's segmented. It approaches it as a story, as a unity. So the parts then are interpreted by the whole. And, and, and the trees are understood by the forest around them. It's always the case. Jesus does, it, does this when he quotes the Old Testament in the New. He always quotes it as though he is the, the final meaning of what's going on. Paul, John, James, other New Testament authors, they all read Old Testament books as though they were a part of a greater story which clarified the trickier parts. So it's a lot of what they're doing then is this is a really difficult passage or a really enigmatic proverb or psalm or prophecy. And when it's quoted in the New, it becomes more clear because the New Testament authors are saying, well, Christ clarifies it. It's like he's blowing the fog. Christ himself, what he did for us on the cross, which is the climax of the, the top of the pyramid, the climax of the whole story, grants that clarity and it blows at the fog of the trickier parts, like Song of Solomon and maybe other prophetic books of the Old Testament, so that we can then say, oh, that's what that was about. I kind of had the idea, but I didn't understand fully until Christ enlightened me and gave me that clarity and, and pointed, me that, pointed me that direction. So this is, how, this is how it helps us as we look at Song of Solomon. This is a broader principle, but as we look at Song of Solomon, this is what helps us interpret it, the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible helps us understand things that are really hard to understand. Well, actually, impossible, I would say. Impossible to understand the book if we don't use the rest of the Bible to read it. We call this biblical theology, which is the principle of understanding the trees in relation to the forest. And it's based upon the biblical idea that God is the ultimate author here, not Solomon. And that ultimate meaning is found not with the human author, but with the divine author. And the climax of the story that it's helping to tell. 
So a lot of the early church would uh, write, and of course this still happens today, but a lot of the early church fathers and so forth would write this way. They talk about, like Augustine wrote this way in, in Origen and Irenaeus. They would write how the latter part of the story, and we can, we can read books and novels and even watch movies this way to some degree today, but in one sense this is kind of unique, to use the end of the story to interpret the first part of the story. It's even saying that we can't understand the first part without the clarifying nature of the latter. So read your Bibles backwards, in other words. Re- read the New Testament first and use it as that key to unlock the meaning of the old and to blow away that fog. Or another simpler way we put this at Hiawatha is reading the Bible from a Christ-centered or a gospel-centered perspective. Kind of like those, um, when I was a kid I got these, I don't know if they still make them or not, but those red decoder glasses and sealer boxes where you get them out, the, the red tint where you've got the code, the puzzle, you can kind of see it, you know, you can kind of cheat, it's ah, come on, I got it. But you can't really. And so you've got to put those glasses on, which kind of takes out the, the red, right? So it does, it kind of leaves the green or leaves the whatever, and you can actually read them secret message. It's kind of like that, where Christ is the glasses, and we can kind of see through the fog. We kind of understand what God is doing in the world. We kind of understand how he's blessing and promising to a people, Israel, but he always has the nations on his mind. We kind of see how Christ is there in the beginning, but it's not until he actually comes into the world and interprets all of it in light of himself that, bam, those glasses go on. And we see, oh, that's what it all was about. Not just this one particular prophecy and story. Everything was, was about him. He is this, in the, in the strictest sense of the word, this sensus planur, or this truer, fuller meaning behind everything in the Bible. Luke 24 gets at this. This is Luke writing about Christ after his resurrection and what he did in those days between his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, part of what he did is open the Old Testament. And he said, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. And the reason why you didn't understand me or why you didn't see me when I arrived is because you, you read the Old Testament in a Christless manner. You weren't waiting for me. You weren't, in, in some ways the Jews were, but not in the right ways, for the most part, anyway, not in the right ways. And so that's why, so that's why they, were, they missed. But he says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, idiom for all of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then later on, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And this wasn't just Jesus picking out the few times in the Old Testament that God got specific about the promise of Christ. It was, as it says here, in all the scriptures. All the scriptures. It was something that unless grasped, it was impossible to understand the Old Testament truly. Impossible. So if this is true then, We have to, this is not just a, this is one way to read the Bible if we kind of feel like it some days, or one, this is like the way. If this is all true, if Jesus is reading it this way, then we follow in step. So if it's true, then we have to be asking whenever we read a passage, this is a tree, but what about the forest? How does the forest help here? Or how do other parts of the Bible help interpret the part I'm reading now? Where else does this imagery come up? Where else does this promise come up? Where else does this event arise? Where else does this imagery uh, come around? So we have to ask ourselves that question to get better at what's going on in the murkier part. So specifically Christ then, or again, the latter portions of the Bible, how are they interpreting the former parts? The New Testament unlocking the, the old. So here's the question. Here's the question in mind. As we come back to Song of Solomon, and we'll build on this question as we go, we're, we're talking about bigger principle here, but as we hone in, on our book, The Song of Solomon, here's the specific question then. It's about love and marriage. 
and sex and a relationship and conflict and resolution and all of that. So we ask, where else does this motif of marriage and love arise in the Bible and what does it say to us there about that motif, maybe in a more clear manner that helps us here in the foggier parts? And if that's our question, the answer is, the Bible talks about marriage quite often, actually, all over the place. If you looked at Genesis 2, way back in Genesis 2, there's, there's marriage and sex already occurring, and it, just, it just actually increases and gets more clear as the story goes on. But usually when the Bible talks about it, there's kind of that, here's what it is on a human level, here's how we've all failed, and here's what it is on a God level. And so usually, it's not to oversimplify because there's more, but basically it's this. Our marriages are messed up in our sin. We love impurely. We commit adultery ongoingly. But God is a true husband to his spiritual bride. And he's faithful. He never divorces. He's perfect. He sacrifices. He puts us first perfectly. Perfectly. And he leads us in that capacity. So it's usually both. Not that humans can't have, and we do. We'll talk about this even today a little bit. Not that we can't have immense joy in marriage and find a lot of goodness in it and have a, a, lot of, yeah, a lot of glory in it, a lot of obedience, a lot of love, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of order, for sure. But in general, when marriage is talked about, this is the, this is the motif in a, in a greater biblical sense. Marriage is God-designed, but it's been perverted by sin. But God came in not just to say, try harder to not do that. He actually embodied what true marriage should be. He was a husband. He was not just a father who adopted children. He was a husband who wooed a bride. These are metaphors for the character of God and the nature of salvation. It's part of what we understand. We look at the cross, we see Jesus dying, and we see a husband dying for his bride who's in trouble, who's surrounded on all sides, who's, who's surrounded by 10,000, and yet he dies and he, and he fights back those 10,000 with the strength of his arm, strength of his hand. So it's very romantic. It's very initiatory. It's very warrior king husband type motif that you see in the New Testament here that, that again, helps inform what's going on throughout the storyline. Isaiah 54, 5, just to give you guys a few examples of this biblically, so you're not just making this up. Isaiah 54, 54, 5 says, for your, this is God speaking, for your maker is your husband. God's saying, I am your husband. That's who I am. Understand me as your husband, or else we disobey and reject part of the scriptures if we don't. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, speaking of Jesus in the church at the end. For the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage of Christ has come, and his bride has made herself ready, who is the church. And then Ephesians 5, so... After Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Makes that comparison. Love your wives, husband, in the same way that Christ loved the church. So it's that same divine marriage juxtaposed to human marriage uh, relationship thing going on. He says this at the end, Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast and cling to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So stop right there for a second. Paul is just saying this is mysterious. The fact that a husband and wife become one flesh and intimately connected uh, spiritually and emotionally and physically is a mysterious, it's not a mystery, it's not really explained by logic or, or science in the strictest sense of the words. It's a mystery how that can occur. And if you haven't been in it, you just, you can't really, it's hard to put into words. If you've experienced it, you've experienced it. 
It's pretty amazing. But then he goes on to say, this is really what I'm talking about, though. This is the mystery I'm talking about. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. That's huge. Whenever we talk about marriage, you, you might think, well, that's not what I mean. It doesn't matter. This is, this is God saying whenever marriage exists or it's talked about, and when it's positive or good, when it's God intended, then behind it, you're always talking about Christ in the church, whether you mean to or not. Always behind talk of a, of a man's love for his wife, always in demonstrations of it, always when you hold it up and say, wow, look at this sacrificial love. What you're really talking about, if you pull back the curtains, is Christ's love for the church. Because the Bible never, ever separates them. It never takes them apart. And so it's one of, one of the maxims for today, I think I have this one written down too, is this. There is no such thing as marital teaching in the Bible that exists on an island and is not in some way informed by God's husband-like love for his people. Does that make sense? There's no such thing in the Bible as God saying, well, I'm really about glorifying my name and saving people from their sin back here, but oh, by the way, here's some random marriage advice up here, but now I'm going to get back to it and keep on saving people from their sin over here. You, you never have it. God never says, here's marriage advice, but I'm not a part of it at all. Never happens, not one time. It's always, 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 whether explicitly or implicitly, connected with what he's doing in the world in a husband-like manner. Always. That's huge. So marriage then, and I hope this is freeing. For some of you, this is going to, and it's okay. I was, I've been there too, and it still hurts to hear this. But um, when, you, when you're confronted with the truth that life's not about you, you, you know you've kind of crossed a line of maturity in the sand a bit, and you actually want to live that out. It's hard to hear, right? But it's actually a very freeing thing too. On the same level, marriage is not about you. It's not about you and your spouse if you're married. It's not about you and your future spouse if you long for marriage and want that someday if you're going to be married. It's not about you. It's not up to you to define it. It's not up to society to define it how we want. It's not ultimately for us. Though we do benefit greatly from it, it's not in the world because we randomly decided that, oh, we want to give tax breaks to families. This is a social, societal platform that seems to work pretty well, so we'll build society. It's not why it's in the world. According to God, he says, I made it in the world shortly after I made the stars. When I hung them in the heavens and made the earth, one of the first things I did is create two people, a man and a woman, and I told them to procreate, have sex. In the, and then sin comes into the world to pervert it, but God stays faithful and he says, I want you to still fill the earth and uh, multiply, grow and multiply and bear fruit, he says repeatedly in the first several chapters of the book of Genesis. So, what's the therefore there? If this is true, if marriage is never ultimately about us, it's never biblically saying Here's some marriage advice, but wait to talk about God and Jesus and the gospel and him dying for your sins later. They're always connected. Divine and human marriage, always connected. If that's the case, then with Song of Solomon, this is the connection we have to make then. Since the Bible always does this, what's the book about? If the clear portions of the Bible that get much more clear on this is what marriage is about, and then Song of Solomon's about marriage and love, if the clear part helps interpret the foggier part, What's Song of Solomon all about? In a word, Jesus. It's about the Savior. It's about God's love for you and me, lost people, who if we profess faith, we are relabeled as his bride, as his claimed one. 
That's behind the, the initial curtain. We might look at that. And it's fine to look at the, the first curtain and say, this is about a human marriage. It's a love story. King Solomon and the Shulamite princess, the Shulamite woman. It's fine. You've got to pull it back and say, how else does the Bible talk about marriage? And how does that inform what's going on here? It's about Christ. It's about the church. It's about God's love for his people and his faithfulness, his initiatory love, his sacrifice. So Solomon, then, is this poetic picture of God's love for us. A few places you see this in modern scholarship. I just want to give you a few examples. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about Song of Solomon, he says, This book is a mine of spiritual treasure and as one of the most exquisite expositions of the relationship between the believer and his Lord to be found anywhere in the Bible. George Burroughs says, God can express to us inward spiritual beauty only through the means of outward sensible beauty. And in this song, he makes use of the outward beauty for impressing on us that which is inward, beautiful, true, and good. Namely, God's love for us. That's a big one. We've talked about that before. There are things we just can't understand about the Spirit until God says, well, it's kind of like this. Here's a marriage. Or it's kind of like this. Here's a loaf of bread. Or it's kind of like this. Here's a fountain. Or it's kind of like this. Here's a battle that I won without Israel doing anything. I just came and did it all for them. Or it's kind of like this prophecy. Or kind of like this. So he speaks spiritual truth. Not that we can't access that at all intellectually. We can. God will press that upon our heart in a more direct manner. But a lot of times he just says, this is inward sensible beauty demonstrated by outward physical beauty. It's the same here that Burroughs is getting at. I'll quote him a lot throughout the series. He's great on this. He says, this is how we understand the gospel. We see it physically at work around us all the time. We hear it in the Bible primarily, but we also see it demonstrated in, in marriages that are, that are healthy. Richard Norris Jr. says, It is surely significant that books such as Leviticus and Song of Songs are seldom read in Christian worship today. Without allegory, that is, spiritual interpretation related to Christ, they languish. Which I agree. I think that if, you don't, if we don't approach this as though it's part of a greater story, if we approach it as though it's a blip on the radar of what God is really doing in the world, we're not going to really care as much about it. We're going we're to give up when it gets tricky. We're not going to really pour into it and do the hard work of, of seeing the, the rest of the story played out here in a microcosm way in the middle of the Old Testament through this love story. Now, this is not to say that we won't or can't learn about human love and marriage from a book like this. I just want to qualify all of this. If you're married, we'll talk about marriage. If your marriage is really in a rut, we'll talk about that. We'll glean principle from this. If you're single and you want to be married someday, we'll talk about qualities to look for in a spouse. If you're engaged, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about sex. There are principles here that we certainly can glean on that you know, front curtain initial level that we, that we see or kind of pass through when we look at the book. For sure, we'll look at that. But what it's saying here is that the essence of Song of Solomon is not a sex manual, like some affirm. It's just out there. Song of Solomon is a, manual, a Christian manual on sex. Here's how you have sex. Go and copy it. It's not what the book's about. Principles, yes. But what it really is about is about God's love for his people, as the rest of the scriptures testify to every single time, marriage, good marriage, monogamous, man and wife, man and woman marriage comes up in the scriptures. So always fuller meaning behind it, and that fuller meaning is Christ and him crucified, where we see afresh that marriage is just more than marriage a lot of times. 
All right, let's move on and see one place this plays out then. We'll look at the first verse today, and I'll read this uh, later as well. Or, I mean, next week as well, to kind of set the stage for the book too. Though we'll really get into it next week. But to give you an example of how this principle of, all right, Solomon's not just here on an island. Love's just not here on an island. Solomon's love for this woman's not here on an island. Authorship, all of that. We'll practice it here just with a couple of words, but then really see the details. So give you an idea. If you've never read this book before, give you an idea of um, what, what types of things are talked about. You know, when Solomon is uh, either quoting scripture or, you know, when, when the, the groom is talking to the wife and describing her, he describes her with different types of fruits or different types of animals or different types of events or things like that, and she to him. And when she dreams especially, it just starts to get very poetic. And so when we have those types of things uh, before us, those, one of those questions, again, will be, well, where does uh, these types of imagery come up elsewhere in the scriptures? What about this kind of fruit or this event or this person or, or so forth? We'll ask those questions to help us read into these. So that's going to come more later, but let's start with just this first verse, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The first verse is the song of, of songs, song of all songs, which belongs to Solomon, which is Solomon's. So what do we know just from verse 1? Just from the title. And this is just a title to the book. So we see authorship here. King Solomon wrote this. We also see that it is called a song, that it's poetry, that it's, it's musical in a sense, that it's a love story. So we talk a lot about Solomon. Solomon is a king. I mentioned that, I think. He's the son of David, king of Israel. He's a man of unprecedented wisdom because he asked for it. When he was a young kid, he realized he was going to be king. He said, God, I'm not smart enough. Give me wisdom. And God said, oh, I'm going to give you about 100 times of what you asked for because you're humble and you knew that I alone am the treasure store of wisdom. So God gave him wisdom to the end that people came from around the globe, the world, at least the known world of that time, to sit at his feet and listen to him. So unprecedented wisdom and authority in that wisdom that people just came to hear. We know he's also a lover because he wrote this and he writes uh, a song. So he's a songwriter here as well. Like he wrote a few of the Psalms he also is a songwriter. <clears throat> we also know, fast forward to the New Testament, that Jesus speaks of him. And by the way, great principle here for reading your Bibles. If Jesus ever talks about an Old Testament passage or event or something, always look at that. He will help you, <laughs> almost always. He'll theologize about it. He'll twist it in the light of his own glory. And I'll say, this is what this is really about. And it happens to be the case that Jesus talks about Solomon. What does he say? Matthew 12, 42. Something greater than Solomon is here. So you see what he's doing? He's linking himself with Solomon. He's saying something better than him, but similar to him. I'm a king like him, but I'm also greater than him. Very common way the Bible works with uh, comparing Christ to Old Testament individuals to say they typified him, they pointed to him, but he also surpasses them on, on a much greater spiritual and character-wise level. So with this interpretational paradigm in mind, and we talked about some big picture things today, but also just looking at Solomon. Where else does Solomon come up in the Bible? Does Jesus talk about him? How does he handle him? He compares himself, but also says he's greater. When we do that, fitting underneath that, like a, just a perfect puzzle put together, is Christ being reminiscent of all these things. Right? We, can actually, we can actually list out what Solomon is and say, well, who does that remind you of? Who is that like? In the Bible, well, the ultimate Solomon, the greater Solomon, the ultimate son of David, right? Because Jesus is all these things. Jesus is the ultimate son of David, according
according to Matthew 1.1. He is the ultimate king, king of kings, actually, much greater than Solomon. He's a man of unprecedented, unprecedented wisdom and authority from Mark 1. He's our spiritual husband from Revelation 19, our lover. And he is the one who is associated with the new song and the song of the Lamb in the New Testament, i.e., a songwriter and one who gives a song to the people of God to sing before him, a song only the church knows in thanksgiving before him to sing forever and ever and ever before him. So in all these ways and more, Solomon really resembles Jesus. And this is why it's so critical to link these things, and I think to affirm the fact that Solomon wrote the book, because therefore it's much easier to tie together Solomon's love that he has for this woman and Jesus' love that he has for you and me. Otherwise, it's more of a disconnect. Because those two are linked biblically. So when we do that, we, we affirm that God is whispering his love through Solomon, but shouting his love through Christ. He's in a foggy manner saying, this is my love for my, my bride, my people. I'm wooing people to myself in their sin. I'm calling them to, to share in my glory. And through Christ, he's saying all those things and more. He's saying, this is, what's, this is what salvation means. Marriage to the Godhead. It's not keep a list of do's and don'ts and try harder. It's being one flesh with God. That screams anti-law. It screams anti-Ten Commandments. It screams what, what matters is God's love. What matters is that there's a, a spiritual husband out there who is like what we're reading here, but greater, who's sacrificial, who gives himself, who never divorces, who talks to us, who's never lazy in his husbandship, if that's a word. He's loving, loving, loving all his days and much greater than what we're going to whisper here. We're going to get a whisper throughout the series, but he shouts to us uh, in, in his son. To the end that we see this, 1 John 4, no mistake that we see so much love tied up with Christ. 1 John 4, 6, 4, 16, God is love. 1 John 4, 10. So in other words, this is huge too, 4, 16. If that's true, Again, we have to read other parts of the scriptures talk about love in light of God's love. This is going to get very heavily philosophical for a second, but if God is love, there's no such thing as love that exists apart from him. Every, every type of actual, true, good, godly love that you experience in your life, marriage context or not, or that you see in the world, is at least a drop in the bucket or a whisper or a glimpse of 1 John 4.16. This is how God has orchestrated and just designed the world, but orchestrated our lives. It's to not just hear, but to experience his love. And then 410, more specifically, in this is love. This is love right here, defining it again. Not that we have loved God, because we didn't, but that he loved us in our sin and sent his son to be the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. So as Christians, then, this is what we do, right? We herald that news. We say to the world, this is love. You think you're loved? You have no idea. No idea. The God who made you, you were nothing. And he made your consciousness. He made your body. He made your soul and spirit. He made your life. He placed you in this part of history intentionally, who's looking over you every day and who's close. He loves you. He's not just those things. He's those things in love. He loves you. This is the essence of evangelism, right? Love and forgiveness are wrapped up in the Christ. The plan of God. He didn't just die. He died to express love. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved. I'm loved. We're loved by the king of the universe. Praise be to God. The second Solomon, the ultimate, ultimate husband. All right. Here's a, a few things in conclusion. 
And some of this will be uh, a little bit of summary and repeat, other things, some extra encouragements here as you kind of whet your appetite a bit for the series and maybe prepare for it. And a lot of you guys like to just read the book ahead of time, and I'll talk about that in a second. Others of you, if you're looking for a commentary, I have a few that I'm going to consult. Some are ancient, very old commentaries, uh, first couple centuries written. So we have some of the writings of the first early church fathers that I think are just gold for series like this. Others are more modern commentaries and some in between. But if you want some of those, just talk to me. I can pass on some of my favorites that I think are maybe most accessible, or if you want all of them, that's fine too. Um, but as we, as we whet our appetite, as we set the stage for it, here's a few things. One, I encourage you guys, all of you, this week, wherever you guys are spiritually, no matter how biblically literate you are or are not, read the book this week in one sitting. It's so fun, and you'll, it, it'll drive you crazy. You'll pull your hair out, and you'll love it. It's just awesome. Uh, so, but read it, though. When you read it, this will help you. We talked about a lot of this today. Read it as though Jesus is the king, Jesus is the he, and you are the she. You are the bride, because we are. We know this. We're not guessing at this. We're not trying to say, well, it kind of fits if we think of ourselves. No, we know this. We have the key. We have the red glasses. Put them on and read it this way and understand the gospel and God's love and his initiatory sacrificial grace to you better uh, through the Song of Songs. Another, another way to understand this too, or another benefit, I should say, to reading the, the well, Bible this way, but reading this book this way, is that it doesn't matter if you're married or single because the book's going to mean the same thing to you. If you make this book just about like a sex manual for marriage, we've instantly like, you know, made it irrelevant for half the, half the population or whatever. But it's not. God's promises and truths are always relevant for wherever you are because it's not ultimately about physical marriage. It's about divine marriage to us. And so, again, we'll learn about the principles, no doubt. We'll talk about the human side of the text, but then spend all the more time on the divine side so that, if, again, if you're looking to be married someday, we'll talk about that. If you are married, if your marriage is just in a rut, if it just sucks right now, we'll talk about that. We learn things, but we'll really land on the, wherever you are, you are what, if, if you believe in the gospel, you're wedded to God through Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about what that means and how to grow in that, how to get through conflict in that. Because like any relationship, there's bumps, right? You've been a Christian for a day. You know that you feel distant from him when maybe you shouldn't. You sin when you think, I have all the resources I'll ever need to kill sin in my life and I still go back like a dog to its vomit. Why do I do that? And so we'll talk about these, these like relational bumps and issues and how Christ is always faithful, he never divorces, but how in that love we can find identity and grow through that uh, as well. But, uh, but again, wherever you are, uh, this isn't, your marital status really has nothing to do with it. It really doesn't because ultimately this is about Jesus, not about how to be married well or how to have sex well or how to look for a spouse well. That's just not what it's about, ultimately. Okay. And then uh, next, when you get stuck, and you will, uh, stop, pray, and ask. And I talked about this. Where else does imagery in the Bible arise? How does it help me here? If you're still stuck, just keep reading get the big picture, because you will be. Uh, but just keep reading. Get the big picture. Step back and look at the forest. Don't get honed in on this one imagery and say, I have no idea what that means. Step back and just get the big picture, which is God's faithful to you. God's single-minded for you. He's initiatory for you. He's passionate for you. He has husband-like, non-divorcing love that's faithful all your days for you. It can never change. Like, um, I forgot if it was a song or if uh, Mark was praying this. It might have been the end of the set. 
that last song we sang, just talked about that, never, that, that God never changes. What's the last song we sang, Mark? Or that idea never changes or solid rock, shifting sand. That was it. Uh, so everything, shift, everything changes. Everything changes. Everything in life moves and changes like crazy. But God doesn't. That's huge. If that's true, that means God can say, I love you, and it will never change. He can say, I forgive you, never change. He can say, I'm inside you by my spirit, never change. You can't lose what God says, I give, and I, I can't change. I, I'm, it's, unpo- it's impossible for God to change. So he'll never become bad or evil. That's a, that's a at least there's that today, right? <laughs> like, life kind of sucks, but at least there's that. Huge, right? Theology blesses your mind. Theology, good theology makes you happy. Bad theology will wreck you. We have to know about God, what he's like and what he's not like, so that we'll just have love joy. Not just that we'll be saved, but that we'll have happiness in that salvation. And part of that is that God does not change. Shifting sand, the world, unchangeable rock, Jesus Christ. So tell yourself that. Saved from sin, unified to him by grace, and not held at a distance with laws you can't keep. One thing we'll say, and I'll just, again, this is a wet your appetite kind of thing, so we'll come back to this. But one thing you'll see in the series is the glorious presence of God's love and the glorious absence of law. The Ten Commandments are not mentioned once in this book, which is interesting because it's a part of, it's all underneath a covenant of law in the Old Testament that was meant to pass away, never meant to endure. But this is the glimpse here of, you know what really matters? Not what you do, but God being a husband that's faithful to you. That's what matters. God being father, God being husband, God being initiator, God being savior, God being giver, God being love expresser. Remember that, First John 4. Love is not that you and I have loved God. We haven't. That's the whole point. That's what we're being saved from is hating him, being an enemy to him. This is why Christ bled so much, why it was so torturous. It's the worst of sins that we'd commit treason against him. We'd slap him in the face like the soldiers before his crucifixion. We'd spit on him. We crown him with a crown of thorns. We've all done this with our conscience and our heart. This is partly, this is why he died such a, such a gruesome death, is that he's taking on all of that kind of sin, all of that type of treason, all of that type of ridicule and despondency towards the king of the universe. That's really ultimately at its core what, what sin is. But again, glorious love is present. Law is gloriously absent. It's not about what you do. And, and, and it's appropriate that we have all of that idea underneath the umbrella of this is a relationship here. This shouldn't be, and this is why I think God does this. He says these things that we can kind of get, but it's hard, it's, it's theologically heavy in some areas. But then he can say, well, if that's hard, look at a marriage around you. Look at a good marriage and understand it that way. Like what, what good husband says to his wife, if you do these things, then I will love you. Be more kind. Talk about me more. Uh, clean the kitchen more frequently. Or, um, you know, just be kind, kinder. What, else, what am I missing here? I don't know. Like, we don't go through this, hopefully, right? I'm just trying to go from whatever. But um, what good husband does that? Right? What husband says, if you do this, then I'll love you. Be better. Why do you think God is like that then? If a good husband wouldn't be like that, why do you think God is like that? Why must we constantly put laws between us and the, and the Heavenly Father who calls himself our, our maker and our husband? 
if good marriages and the world aren't like this, then why do we transpose it or place it like a grid on top of this is what, this is again, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology keeps you away from God. Bad theology pushes you to a lifestyle of religion and doing rather than a relationship with your creator. So God is constantly saying this to, in many and various ways this happens throughout the scriptures. This is one beautiful place where it's like this drop in the, amidst Israel trying really hard to keep the Ten Commandments but failing. And God knowing that's going to happen, that's part of the intent. It was never intended to be the mediator. It was never intended to save. But God gave them that and the world watching to show that sin is a really big deal. And it's a pit I can't climb out of. So, but drop like a, you know, a, a drop of like visine on a red eye or something. You know, just this glorious drop. In, in the middle of all of that, you have a love story. Amidst a covenant of law that couldn't be kept, God is dropping in this king who's a lover, a songwriter, a king of peace, a king of order. He just drops it in there. To, to, on the way to Christ, we're on our way there. This is about a thousand years before Christ, but we're on our way there. And, and, and the world watching and Israel themselves have this like, oh, this interruption amidst law, this interruption amidst doing, this interruption amidst sin, and saying, well, what if God is like that? Solomon's a king. Well, God says he's a king. Solomon's a full of peace. Well, God says he's full of peace. Solomon's a husband and lover. Well, God says he's the husband of our souls. What if he's like that as well? With Christ, it's foggy there. With Christ, we see, ah, that's the whole point of marriage. That's what he's doing in the world. So I have all of that. And then this last thing here is do all of that this week. I encourage you to. Um, I usually give homework like that, but I am today. Do it. Uh, but then step back and just wi- widen your gaze a bit. Widen your gaze outside the book and even outside the Bible to include all stories of love between a man and a woman, and, uh, you know, whether it's in movies or Elvis songs or, uh, or, or it, people you know, your parents or your friends are married. You're not yet, but your friends are married and have a great relationship. Not perfect, but great. Widen your gaze. Because remember, all of this is true not just for biblical marriages, like good marriages that we see happen in the Bible, like with Adam and Eve. We talked about that a bit, but others as well. It's not just that. If, if Ephesians 5 is true, the Apostle Paul is saying all marriages on their best days when they're happening healthily refer to Christ in the church. All marriages. Yours if you're married, your future marriage, if you're going to be married someday, mine. They do, or at least they can, refer to Christ in the church when a husband is dying for his wife and loving, loving her. So widen your gaze and just look. Because we hear about this all the time. We preach it and we need to every week because we forget. We also, throughout the week, we continue to do that, but we also need to look and look for these love stories of our culture, these love stories of, of our artistic culture and just our, our, our own narrative in the world. Because there's marriages around us all the time that even, even like bad marriages have a pretty good day every once in a while. And this is where, again, I'm pretty heavily philosophical on you for a second, but the point is Christians believe that exists because God exists. That's it. That goodness that you see amidst kind of a bad marriage, that glimpse of goodness, that did not originate with those people. That, is a gl- that refers, if Ephesians 5 is true, we cannot say that doesn't refer to Christ in the church. Right? We cannot say it. It always refers to Christ's love for his bride. 
his church. One example <clears throat> that Elif and I had recently, we, uh, we binge-watched this. We don't do this a lot. Actually, we do. <laughs> Never mind. But uh, together, we did. Uh, we, watched Fr- we watched all of Friday Night Lights on Netflix. You guys seen this? The TV show? There's one. Is that the f- football coach back there saying that? There you go. All right. Uh, it's a movie too, right? But this is the TV. Five seasons. Um, it gets a little worse as it goes on, <laughs> I think. Buyer beware. But you should watch it. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, really good. What we liked about it, though, is a lot of things. Um, is there's a lot of carnality in it sexually, but there's a really great kind of um, stalwart marriage at the core of the story where this football coach and his wife are in the small Texas town and they have a faithful, loving marriage where the husband, believe it or not, because you see it painted uh, contrary to this so much in pop culture and television, is the husband's actually, you know, not a doofus, you know? We all kind of are as, as husbands. We're all kind of a doofus. But in one sense, though, the way that pop culture paints husbands is lazy, just stupid, uh, just uh, not initiatory. Uh, the, the wife has to do everything in the family because the husband is nothing. Contrary to what the Bible is saying husbands should be like. But what I think you get in this story, though, is the opposite. You actually get a husband, this football coach, who celebrates his wife, who puts her first, who celebrates her work, um, who leads and takes responsibility in the relationship, who... Um, they're not, uh, it's not spiritual stuff that goes on, but if, if there were, there would be this constant call for the husband to say, let's read our Bibles, let's talk about Jesus, let's pray, let's talk about mission in our neighborhoods. And, and, forgive, and he says, forgive me a lot. What a great leadership thing, you know, to say, will you forgive me for how stupid I am? Just forgive me. Like, that, that's a good leadership principle when, when a husband will say that to his kids and, and to his wife. And we just saw that in, in the movie and, um, or in the, in the, uh, TV series, and it impacted us. And I realized, I forgot if I talked with you about this yet or not, Aletha, but I remember halfway through just thinking, we noticed it, we talked about it, but I remember just thinking, the reason why I'm impacted, we're impacted by that, is because Christ is behind it. Because there's a greater Coach Taylor in the world. There's a greater marriage like that. It actually, it's not the end. If we're the end, does it really matter to me? It's great it's going on, but does it really matter? It does. Because God is kind of like that man in the show. And obviously he's got his issues. The marriage isn't perfect. No, no, none are. But God on the good days is kind of like it. So we can hear God died for our sins and we can watch Friday Night Lights and we get the same message if we're attuned to it. Now obviously this is more important, but uh, it's, it's still complimentary and it's still acknowledging that we're, hey, we're widening our gaze here. We're believing God's at work on a really high level and... Um, we're believing all marriage refers to Christ and the church. So when you do that, learn from it. This is how we're going to approach songs, is we're going to learn. And when we watch a TV show like that, I'm not sitting there with my notepad saying, I should say that to my wife, or I should, you know, lead that way, or I should ask for forgiveness that way. Or Not that we can't do that. That wouldn't be bad to do. It's just not the way we normally are impacted by stories like that, right? Normally, it's just, that impacts me. I'm moved by that. And that's how I want to encourage you guys to approach song. Is Yeah, there's a time to say, wow, that's a principle there I can take as a husband or a wife or a future husband and wife or an engaged person or with singles, I think about future marriage. You can do that, but it's not normally how we're impacted by it. Normally, it's just like, wow, wow. And the wow gets us to Christ more than it gets us to us. It's not about you. It's not ultimately about me. It's not about us. 
This is about the Christ in this story. And so be wowed by the story and the faithfulness, the absence, glorious absence of law and conditionality and divorce, and be amazed. And then think, God is like that. Let me pray. God, thank you for uh, your amazing grace uh, that we uh, are just, we're starting to scratch the surface here in this particular uh, series, but thanks for a chance, God, to introduce this and talk over some issues related to a biblical theology of love and marriage and sex briefly, but then really the trajectory of that, which is always you. Uh, God, I pray that you would bless us as we read the book this week and for the next 15 weeks. Uh, help us, God, to, be, uh, to really have that fog blown away, the, the shade to come up, that we might understand the book a bit better when we realize, oh, this is really not about just Solomon. It's not about this unnamed woman. It's not really about me either. This is about God showing what, what kind of God he is like to a dead, weary, wandering, sinful world. Uh, thank you that you're faithful, uh, that you destroy sin, that you fight our battles. Thank you that you're initiatory, that you take responsibility, that you are not found, you find us. All these things we'll see play out uh, narratively in, in Song of Solomon. So God bless us. I pray that after these 15 weeks, even after this next week, we'll be a healthier church because we have better theology about you and we have less bad theology about you. We all have it too. So uh, free us from bad pictures of who you are because we, we, we buy into this stuff all the time, whether it's the devil or just our hard hearts or culture. Churches preaching bad doctrine, whatever our past has been, uh, God, it's not forming us well when it's not biblical. And God, so may good, healthy theology uh, free us to be your child, free us to be your bride, free us to be in you, uh, not kept away from you anymore, but saved by your grace and your death on a cross for our sins. In Christ's name, God, we pray for all this. Amen. Amen.